again. Welcome back to the well. I've missed you guys. I am, of course, your host, Dylan Bowman, and I'm happy to be back recording after a few weeks off. I was busy doing some other things, but I am rested and rejuvenated in mid-season form here in July of 2020. And today I am happy and proud to bring you a super fun conversation with Sasha DeJulian. Sasha is a professional climber by trade, but that is a very small part of who she is. And for that reason, I really look up to her as being the embodiment or the personification of what it means to be a modern professional athlete, particularly in non-traditional sport. She started climbing at a very young age and she's really blazed uh, a unique path for herself since the time that she began climbing when she was but an infant in Washington, D.C. She has since become a world champion. She's accomplished things that put her in the upper echelon of one of the best who's ever done it. But she also is a renaissance woman. She keeps herself very busy with other activities, philanthropy, activism, media projects, many other things. And Sasha, as a result, has built an enormous following. Um, She does a great job of lifting her sport uh, to a new level and um, also being human and open and honest about the highs and lows that come with being a professional athlete, taking on personal risk, dealing with injury and things like that. And we go into all that subject matter here. Sasha and I only connected last week when we did an Instagram live with one of our mutual sponsors, Rotech, um, on her Instagram account. You could probably find it there. If you're interested in watching that, we talked about keeping ourselves healthy uh, through our mobility exercises with the help of ProTech. And it was then that, uh, yeah, Sasha and I decided to do a podcast and it was a true honor to get to know her a little bit better. And uh, I think you guys will grow to become great fans of her as well. As always, I appreciate you guys tuning in. If you do enjoy this, please share it with a friend. Leave me a rating or review if you feel like it. I'd super appreciate it. But either way, I uh, do appreciate your audience, and I hope this brings you some value in your day, in your summer, wherever it finds you. Okay, here we go. Sasha DeJulian. We are are just um, started putting art on the walls. Like, it's been a year that I've lived here, and I got, yeah, I, I bought this house, like, last May, but I signed it. I signed all the finishing papers like when I wasn't even here. And so this joint of time from like COVID onwards has been the most we've actually been at home. Have you been doing like a million house projects? Because we we actually yeah. just bought a house in Portland, my wife and I in January. And so of course we've been using the COVID time also to just uh, be maniacs around the house. So yeah, exactly. All the home projects. Yeah, it's been It's been useful. Well, cool. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, it looks like a, a beautiful sunny morning there in Boulder, Colorado. How are you today? 
Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on today, Dylan. Um, I am good. Yeah. Just, uh, another nice sunny day in Boulder as you're well familiar with. I am. Yes. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Boulder. We live in, uh, in Portland now and, uh, summer, it seems like has just started this morning. It's a glorious, beautiful, um, morning here and, uh, it hasn't come a moment too soon. We've all been waiting for this, this beautiful weather for, for many months. So, um, I know you're, you're not totally able to enjoy the outdoor recreation as you normally would. And, and these, these summer months. So I kind of wanted to start with just like, how are you right now with, uh, you know, the circumstances of the world, the coronavirus and, and your personal health, how are, how are uh, things for you this summer so far? Yeah, you know, this is the first summer in maybe over 15 years that I'm not on some like expedition. Yeah. Um, but what's wild is it's not just due to COVID um, or my injury. I mean, I mean, it's not just due to my injury. It's also due to a myriad of other reasons like COVID. Um, but I'm actually doing well. Um, it's been about eight weeks since my second surgery of the first two in the set, which were the arthroscopic, um, labrum and shaving down the femur. And then the PAO was the following week. And I think that if you told me like, I don't know, even five months ago, you are not going to do any exercise for at least six weeks post-surgery. I'd be like, I would lose my mind. I like didn't, I mean, the longest time mm -hmm. I'd ever taken off from climbing before this was probably about six weeks total. Like, I don't even know when that was. Mm -hmm. um, maybe three weeks or something was more average. But I'm actually, I feel pretty grateful for this reminder. You know, it's like, um, being reminded to, to find gratitude and the stillness, but also, um, it's kind of like this rebuild period for me where I've literally been knocked down to my, um, foundations. And now I need to rebuild that both mm -hmm. mentally and physically. Um, so I'm trying to maximize those efforts and, and get back. So I'm mentally and physically beyond where I was. Yeah. It's beautifully said. And I think every athlete, you know, deals with these, these low points at some point in their career. And, you know, me, myself, as we talked about just the other day on our Instagram live that we did for one of our mutual sponsors, ProTech last year was, was that time for me where I was knocked down to my foundations. And luckily I've been able to kind of rebuild to a point where, I'm confident in my body again. I have that gratitude and that joy for, for what I'm doing again. And I want to talk more about, you know, your injury and stuff and, uh, you know, specifically kind of what you've, you've been through this year. But I think, you know, before we get into that, it'd be useful to set the table a little bit, obviously you and I have only connected, you know, digitally or, you know, virtually in person, um, just last week for the first time, but I'm a longtime follower and admirer of yours and, oh, likewise. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, and, but you know, I'm sure most people will be kind of familiar with, with who you are and what you do, but, um, for the, the sort of trail run specific people who will listen to this, why don't you give a kind of a bird's eye view of who Sasha DeJulian is? 
areas, your, your history as a, as a climber, uh, some of the things you've achieved and, and where you are now in your career? Sure. Um, gosh, well, I started climbing when I was six in 1998 and to keep it short, um, I have won the world championships. I was the undefeated Pan American champion for 2004 to 2014. So about 10 year span. Um, I'm on the board of the women's sports foundation and I also work with protect our winters and access fund and American Alpine club. And, um, I try and use, you know, my voice that I've developed, um, as a platform to affect the change that I'd like to see that I think that we all need to see for our planet, um, both legislatively, um, you know, lobbying in Washington and, then also um, just like using my platform to speak out on social media. Um, since retiring from competition climbing, which was about uh, six years ago, I've really concentrated on outdoor climbs. I've done um, over 30, 514 and harder first female ascents, um, over a dozen first ascents around the globe. Um, traveled to over 40 or 50 different countries, um, when the world was more normal. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of who I am. I, I also graduated from Columbia university in 2016. Yeah. You're, you're like the true overachiever, overachiever. (laughs) Yeah. Just like everything there is to do, I think in, in, in your sport, you, you've sort of accomplished. Um, and obviously like you keep your, your plate full with a lot of different activities that make you a, an interesting person well beyond being an athlete. But when you were a kid, you said you started climbing when you're like six years old were your parents climbers or like, what was it about climbing at such a young age that spoke to you in such a powerful way? Um, yeah, my parents weren't climbers at all. Actually, they didn't even know that climbing was a sport and neither did I. Um, my brother had a birthday party at a climbing gym nearby our house and he was really into hockey. I, I forgot in my little short bio, I'm also Canadian. Um, but I'm a dual citizen. So, um, he was really into hockey that I preface with Canadian because it was in my blood to be, <laughs> you know, I started skiing when I was three and I was a figure skater before I was a climber. Um, and I just remember like we, at when my brother was at hockey practice, like I'd be climbing the rafters and the joke with the parents would be like, where's Sasha? Oh, look up. And I'd like be like giving my mom a heart attack. But then at this climbing birthday party, I just remember like, I really, um, well, I was really competitive with my brother. Um, so I was better than him. So I was like, this is my <laughs> calling. but I think on a more personal note, you know, climbing is such an individual sport where like running, like you're in control of your output based off of what effort you input. And that comes from like mind and body. Um, and, and it wasn't a really like articulated form of this when I was six, it was just something that I really enjoyed doing. So I went about two times a week after the birthday party, like the employees were like, um, to my mom, Hey, uh, your daughter's really good, which I'm sure they told to all of the birthday party goers. Um, you should bring her back for a junior team practice. And that was how I started going like biweekly. And then about a year after that, 
the gym was holding a regional championship for youth divisions. And I walked in to the gym. It was like a Saturday morning for junior team practice. And there is just like this buzz of kids from the tri-state area all there for this event. And it was my first time ever like stumbling upon a climbing competition. Mm. And after like some coercing and begging from my mom's side with the organizers, like they let me compete in the 11 and under category. I was seven at the time and, you know, like climbing hadn't exploded. So I doubt there are like many kids there, but I won my category. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like what started uh, my perception of like, oh, wow, I could do this as like a sport, not just my hobby. Um, so yeah, my parents' journey with climbing was learning about it through me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. And I think it's, uh, an interesting thing too, to, yeah, sort of like have that thought when you're seven years old of like, well, I actually like doing this and I'm actually really good at it. And maybe, maybe I could like, actually pursue this as something like when you're that young, it's just, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. I'm sure for you to look back at now, now 20 years later, but, and then like (laughs) ultimately like the momentum, you know, sort of started to, to roll out in front of you and you started having a lot of competitive success and stuff. And, uh, I'm curious, like, you know, at what point did you start to feel like you were competing like on a world-class level and how did you balance that with wanting to also kind of be a normal kid? Were you always able to, to balance those two things? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I could kind of trace it back to a few instances, you know, as a kid, I think I took myself more seriously than like my age would allow me to. Um, When I first, um, I won my first like junior North American championship uh, in Mexico City, I think I was 11. Um, And at that time I was like, oh wow, I, I had like some international success, but it was still like super just like, fun basis. You know, I I wanted to make the U.S. national team because I wanted to be a part of the club that had like the USA team backpacks. Mm -hmm. Like that was like my drive. Um, And I would say when I was 16, when I won my first, like at 16, you're eligible to compete in the adult category. Um, I won my first adult national championships. And, um, now I had my first sponsor when I was 12, but it was a really minimal, like, you know, product only type deal. And I think that climbing, it was just what I really loved to do. So it did come with a lot of like sacrifices over the weekends. I had like a very not, um, normal, I guess, like, you know, Friday nights, I wasn't going to like the parties at, mm-hmm. at, um, high school, I was more like, you know, getting my rest or traveling to go to a competition. Um, but it came pretty naturally. Like it was just what I preferred to do. Um, so it was never, it wasn't hard for me to do that. Um, and yeah, I, I think that also when I was 16, my parents let me travel alone to Europe with a group of friends and we went climbing outside in Spain. So like 
they, my parents never pushed me, but they encouraged me to follow what I was passionate about. And with school, academics always came first. And so it was like, Mm. if you get straight A's, then you can take off Friday to fly to France and compete in this competition. But if your grades slip, like you can't take off school. Um, So it just drove me, you know, at like lunchtime, I was like the nerd taking my lunch to go, sitting in the library, doing my homework. We would have like 20 minute, um, you know, like time periods of breaks or whatever. And I'd be like utilizing that to like do my homework so that by the time I went home, I had maybe like not much homework to do and I could focus on like climbing and, and yeah, being at the gym. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, it goes back to the, uh, the general theme of your life of being a total overachiever, getting straight A's where most of like the pro climbers, I think sort of come up from, you know, living in a van being, uh, living some sort of like monk type, uh, lifestyle and, in, in the simple pursuit of, of one dream. And that's, uh, climbing to being a well-rounded academic, uh, well-educated person who took your, uh, your studies seriously. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a theme that sort of run through runs through your entire career and I want to talk about you know your your time at Columbia University as well but I think it's interesting to linger a little bit on the subject of your parents and them empowering you at a young age especially because you would think that climbing it has it comes with a little bit more inherent risk than if you would have pursued hockey or phys- figure skating or the other things that you've mentioned so and them allowing you to travel on your own at a young age. And I think in this day and age, uh, I think a lot of parents are more prone to being much more protective, much more controlling. How did uh, that relationship with your parents and the, the trust that they had for you help you to develop as an athlete? Yeah, well, that's a lot. I mean, I appreciate the what you said and, and I could, could kind of go tangential to a few of those points later on. But, um, you know, I think that my parents just had a lot of trust in me and because they had trust, I wanted to respect that trust and maintain it. Um, but also, um, yeah, I, I think it's really important when it comes to not like helicoptering your parents, like, I don't have kids, so I can't really make the judgment call there. But from my experience with my parents, um, I, I had a little bit of like a, um, relationship with my dad that I wanted to prove that climbing was a legitimate sport. Mm. Um, and so I was really, really eager from a young age to be financially independent. Um, and I, you know, both of us were really stubborn And, um, and and I think that my dad was really into watching my brother play hockey and, uh, he had played football through college and stuff. Um, and he didn't know anything about the world of climbing. So I kind of like wanted to prove, and maybe to my family, but also to myself that it could be like this actual sport. Um, cause at the time, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, like climbing had not exploded at all yet. Um, and it was very fringe and also on the, like seeing myself as a professional climber. Um, 
it wasn't something that I aspired to, to be honest. Um, I didn't see myself as um, relating to professional climbers that came before me. And just on the side that I grew up in a city, like I grew up in DC, mm-hmm. um, I was like encouraged by my parents to yeah be as well fasted academically and professionally as possible. And I actually wanted to be a TV broadcaster, <laughs> an anchor woman. <laughs> well, you you do some broadcasting or some commentary, yeah, don't you? Some yeah, commentating yeah. for sure. But um, and then my mom, my mom actually just learned how to belay, and she came to gym practice uh, every time. And and in order to maximize the time. Uh, efficiently, I would do laps with her belaying. So in climbing, normally like you switch off belaying each other and that kind of adds double the time. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty spoiled with her. Like I would be at the gym and do like 16 laps in a row or something and, and whatever I needed to do and then go home and have time to like eat dinner with the family and uh, do the rest of my homework or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, I think that through, and, and my, you know, my career was made possible through the climbers that have come before me. And I have so much respect for them. I just, um, I just kind of needed to create my own path in my own mind of, of what I wanted to get out of climbing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And you have, I think blazed a a new trail too in, in your sport and in non-traditional kind of outdoor adventure sport in general. And I think you really kind of exemplify what it means to be a modern professional athlete, especially outside of the core four sports, you know, where you, you obviously are a high performing athlete, but then you do all these other things on the side to help not only lift your own profile, but to lift your entire sport. And, um, one of the things I wanted to get to a little later, but we might as well touch on now that I think is really cool in this vein is something you did recently on your Instagram with Senator Mark Warner that I saw. It was just like, so cool. It's like, you know, I hear, uh, here you are, you know, a professional climber and a, a sport that's, you know, it's growing. It's, uh, you have a huge following, but it's a niche, it's a niche adventure sport. And you're sitting down with a high profile sitting U S Senator, um, doing like a live interview on your Instagram. So I was curious sort of like how that came about with, with Senator Warner and, and what you two are working on together, how that came to be. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having watched that. Um, I'm trying to do these live discussions with um, politicians and from Instagram live or just offline phone calls about climate action and discussing the policies that are really crucial. And also, this is a really big year, you know, like 2020 is like Mm -hmm. huge election year. So encouraging at least as much as I can, my audience to vote. Like it's a nonpartisan thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. just activate your, your right to vote. Um, but the, yeah, the live interview with Warner came about because he actually was one of my dad's best friends. Um, he lived in our neighborhood. I went to school with his daughters. They were good friends of mine too. And we had this dad daughter club together and, um, one of our adventures, this is when I was like, you know, seven, 
up to like not much older than that. We went rock climbing. So um, when we'd be at like family dinner parties or whatever, uh, he likes to claim that he got me into climbing. So, um, it was kind of a fun full circle thing. Um, and I, you know, I had a good relationship, um, speaking with, uh, Senator Kane. Um, I did this project in breaks, which is an interstate park along the Virginia, Kentucky border where they're actually, the state is supporting the development of climbing. And I went there with hopes to just leverage my platform with climbing to bring attention to this new area. Um, and that's where, you know, like climbing is such a selfish pursuit, like just on, on the bottom line of it. Like we go and we try and do these ascents of these mountains for ourselves Um, but what I really hope to add into my goals is like, how can I make this project more altruistic and, and affect more than just me? Um, so doing like things like that, where, where you can shine a light on a, um, kind of like depressed economy and see an ecotourism light that can actually revitalize Mm -hmm. it was the mission of that trip. Um, and so, yeah, having conversations with Senator Kane and Senator Warner, Congressman Beyer, um, I actually had a live interview with Congressman Rooney, who's a conservative Republican in Florida. And uh-huh. we are going to talk about climate change, which I was really excited about because he has come out as I am a conservative Republican and climate change is real. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so instrumental to have like both sides of the aisle on board with this. Um, but it's TBD because he canceled in the last like, five <laughs> minutes. I was like, had all of my notes. Like I kind of like over prepare cause I don't want to embarrass myself, Sure, which I'm still on the line for, but yeah. So hopefully more of those to come. Well, it's really cool. And yeah, kudos to you for, for making the effort there and, and for reaching across the aisle too. And yeah, there's, there's so much value in it. I've just gotten sort of connected with protect our winners as well. And one of the things that they talk about a lot, which I think is so smart is, you know, the out, using the outdoor industry as like a lobbying block and calling it the like the outdoor state i think is what they call it yeah. and there's so many people like you and i who who care about the places where we recreate and if we can sort of consolidate our voting influence we can leverage quite a bit of power. And so kudos to you for, for opening up those conversations. And it's, it's kind of up to people like you who have great followings and who are really good with, with social media to sort of lead that charge for the rest of us. But I want to kind of go back a little bit and talk about, um, you know, your world championship, because I think, uh, I would never forgive myself if I didn't get to explore that a little bit. And this is, I think back when you were 17 or 18 years old, you won the the world championship. And I'm curious, sort of like what that was like for you at such a young age, what the story is behind it and, and how you look back at it now with a little bit more maturity. Yeah. Um, it was 2011. So I just graduated from high school and I deferred my acceptance to Columbia for a year. Cause I was like, 
my goal is to do really well on the international circuit. Um, and I think that when I won the world championships, it was coupled with like this immense amount of, you know, just like, I couldn't believe it, like pinch my, myself. Am I dreaming? Like, did this really happen? Um, and I'll never forget the national anthem playing. And, and I'm not even like a very patriotic person, but it was a really heartwarming thing. Um, but yeah, it was in Arco, Italy, which was really special to me because my family, my dad's side of the family is from Northern Italy, um, from the Cortina range, which is where like the Dolomites are just outside yeah. of. And, um, yeah, it's just a really beautiful mountainous region. And, um, the whole experience was really, um, it was like a total surprise, um, to me because all I went in for was I had graduated from high school and I, um, had this goal, but I, I didn't even believe it myself. Um, and I think that that's the thing about competition climbing. It's like on any given day, it could be your day. Um, but it was also this turning point for me because after I won the world championships, I started getting a little bit less, um, enchanted by competitions because I had felt, you know, now climbing is an Olympic sport. It just got admitted for its debut and now 2021. But at the time the world championships was like the pinnacle of what you could achieve. Um, and I, I kind of felt like what's next. Um, yeah. and that was when I started climbing outside more. Um, and so it's funny because it was almost like this climactic point in my competition career, but also almost the point that I turned away from competitions. Mm. Um, and that, that fall was when I went down to Kentucky and I climbed this, what was then like really the cutting edge hardest climb that a woman had achieved, um, called a nine a, which is a five fourteen D and climbing. We go on this great scale, which is <laughs> super subjective okay. and really in the semantics. Yeah. Esoteric um, and hard to understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so hard to explain to people yeah. like even my family who don't climb, um, which is a great grounding element to it mm -hmm. because, you know, you remember like, they're like, well, so who decided that this is the grade? And I'm yeah. like, Oh, just some person. And they're like, so who decided that the grade changed? Oh, just the next person. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I did this climb called pure imagination and with, I guess that year of the, these like coupled successes, I started having a lot more international recognition in the mm. sport. Um, it was a big turning point year for me too. I signed with Adidas that year, which is still my title sponsor. So mm -hmm. we're coming up on 10 years together. Um, and I started kind of seeing climbing as this more of this vehicle to explore the world than it was this vehicle to go climbing competitions. And, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's the long answer of it. <laughs> no, it's so, it's so interesting sort of describing it as the end of one chapter and the start of another chapter of, of your career. And it could have easily been the opposite where, you know, you win the world championship and, you know, you kind of want to chase that more and more, um, for the next chapter in your career, but seeing that as a jumping off point to 
more of a uh, explorational or yeah, just kind of like adventurous style um, pivot in your career to outdoor climbing. I something that I was curious about as well, and I know um, you've talked about this in relationship to the um, the Olympics too, about how um, this the structure of how the IOC was implementing climbing in the format that they were going to be using in the Olympic games this year. Um, you voiced both your excitement for the fact that climbing had reached this level, but also like a little bit of ambivalence, um, about the, the structure that they had used. Can you talk a little bit about the, the relationship between, the indoor climbing and the outdoor climbing and what your opinion was in that regard as it relates to the Olympics? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been really excited that climbing is on the biggest world stage that competition can be at. Um, I think it brings a lot more eyeballs to climbing and awareness. And one of my kind of missions in, in climbing is to just to make as many people aware of this sport that I'm so in love with, um, just to experience it. Cause I'm like, just try it out. Um, but for, for the international, I mean, for the Olympic packaging of climbing, um, on the international climbing stage, there's three different categories of competition. There's speed climbing, which is one discipline bouldering, which is a separate one and lead climbing, which is a separate one as well. When I competed, um, you know, like speed climbing wasn't so relevant for the 2011 um, World Championships, for instance, what I won was the female overall. And that was in theory similar to what the Olympics is packaged in. And that's your best result in lead, your best result in bouldering and your best result in speed. But since so many people that did bouldering and lead um, at the highest level, didn't really practice speed climbing. Speed climbing then was relatively irrelevant. Mm. Um, and now each three discipline, each three of the disciplines is equally weighted. So it's a multiplier of your best results. So if you get first in the lead climbing discipline times third in the bouldering times, um, I know eight in speed, then it's one times three times eight. So 24 points. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the less points you have, then the better you, you have ranked. Yep. Um, and that's, that's kind of how the qualifier for the Olympics has been as well. And that's how it'll be in the actual event. Um, what's challenging to me is that climbing in competitions has changed and evolved a lot away from what it used to be. Um, and that was part of what I, why I got less enchanted by the whole idea of competing too. Um, before I could kind of outdoor climb and then show up to a competition and I wouldn't be like out of season, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, now there's a lot of practice that goes within competing and practicing on plastic alone that, um, yeah, it's become very, very energetic and parkour gymnastic oriented, mm. which is exciting for the spectator, but it's been a um, divide in the outdoor climbing community versus the indoor climbing community. Mm. And so I think in some ways like that divide in the sport is pretty healthy because there's a clear distinction of 
you are training for competitions or you're training for an outdoor goal. And that training is going to look very different. Um, in order to do well in competitions, like you need to devote your year to going to all of the events on tour and, and showing up and practicing like those skill sets and that route setting. So another thing about competition climbing is it's set by an international, um, group of route setters who are basically approved to set at the world cup international level. And they determine the different problems, boulder problems, lead climbs, and then the speed climb is a modulated route. So it's the exact same 15 meter course anywhere around the world with the exact same holds. Um, and that's where with speed climbing, um, I will say it's very, very different from what I love about climbing in general, because to me, climbing is about solving puzzle pieces and mm -hmm. putting them together in this jigsaw puzzle to solve the whole, which is solving the sequences and getting to the top. Um, speed climbing, you memorize the sequence and you execute it the exact same every single time. Um, it's not unique each time you get on a different climb. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the separation for the Olympic format. It's a one metal sport. So the, in order to qualify, you have to be the best all around at the three disciplines and then to do, to win the Olympics, you need to be the best rounded, um, athlete of those disciplines. Yeah. So it's very specific. In other words, like you, if you want to be competitive on the, on the world tour now, or be an Olympian, you almost have to exclusively climb in a gym. Is that right? Like you, you have, you can't do much of your training outdoor at all. Right. And vice versa. Right. If you're trying to do, um, a really difficult route, um, that's outdoor, you probably need to train more on rock than in the gym. Is that right? It, it is to a, to the larger extent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's definitely breaks where I would say that competition climbers have been able to go outside and excel in their projects or mm -hmm. boulder problems or sport climbs on rock. It's, it's rare to see a competition climber, um, do like big walls or more adventure driven expeditions. Um, I would say short of Adam Andra, who I always say you can't, you can't make the rule based off the exception. And mm -hmm. he's just like this amazing phenom that, you know, he climbed the Dawn wall after yeah. eight days. And he's, to me, he's the best climber in our sport period. Mm -hmm. Um, but even when you say like, who's the best in the world at climbing, it gets so arbitrary because yeah. you have so many disciplines ice climbing, mountain climbing, competition climbing, sport climbing, bouldering, big wall climbing. There's so many things. Um, but yeah, in general, like when I'm preparing for a big wall climb, um, I'm climbing in the gym for like specific exercises to practice my technique. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, um, where I feel the most prepared for a bigger trip is getting a lot of hours on real rock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm always fascinated with not only the training that goes into this stuff, but also like the the cultural side of things and how the community views 
the format of the Olympics and how it is going to change the dynamic of the sport. If it's going to encourage more climbers to only climb inside, et cetera. I think that's curious. And I realize we're bouncing around quite a bit, but I also want to talk about your, um, your career as a, as a student at, at Columbia, which, uh, I think is you've touched on a bit and, um, you mentioning that you had taken a gap year after high school, you win the world championship. And at that point, I imagine it would have been very easy for you to sort of say, why do I need to go to college? Right. And, um, obviously obviously like Columbia is a, a, a wonderful institution. It's got a great reputation, but I'm sure there was some, temptation maybe for you to forego a college experience. What was it about that or what, what made you inevitably go and uh, pursue your education at university? Yeah. It's funny you say that because I actually got a lot of pushback from my own community about questioning why I wanted to go to university when I was kind of like really at this great point in my climbing career. And, and to me, it wasn't really, um, I never really like fluctuated on my opinion about it. I was just so set on, I know that Columbia is something that I've worked so hard to get into. Like I remember I did early decision uh, to Columbia. So I found out December 8th and like, I'll never forget the surge of emotions and excitement that I had when I like logged in to my account and found out I got in and I was like screeching and my mom like was like, what's happening? And then I told her and then she was screeching. And like, there's just like so much excitement that, um, just because this one facet of my life was doing really well, it didn't mean to me that I was going to kind of kibosh like the other side that I had worked equally as hard to achieve. Um, but, but there was like a definitely, I mean, I think that in my career, I've been known um, a bit for like the business decisions I've made and making climbing. You know, it's my sport, it's my passion, it's my hobby, but it's also, I see it as um, my job, you know, and um, I was responsible for paying for my full tuition at Columbia. And in order to do that, um, I really needed to have my climbing career, um, be lucrative enough for me to afford that. Mm -hmm. And so it did mean when I went to school, taking on, um, every opportunity that I could. And so that included flying to like Asia for the weekend to shoot like a commercial and then flying back and being in class like Monday through Thursday getting on another plane to be at like a competition or an event in Europe. And, and that was like, my lifestyle was, was very run and go, like just, um, not sure what, what jet lag I was experiencing that week. So it was tough on that note because I saw, um, no, I like, I really loved my profession as a climber, but it was also, um, my way of fulfilling these other ambitions for me. And so I was, I was really lucky to be able to make that happen. But um, through college, climbing definitely had to go on the back burner at points, um, whether for like midterms when I'd be, you know, super like rigorously studying and stressed out and I couldn't like go and train for four hours at the gym. 
Um, or it went vice versa where climbing was kind of higher priority. I did have an event where it was the Pan American Championships in 2012. So it was my first uh, semester at college and uh, the Pan Ams were in Venezuela. And I had a exam that I saw in my syllabus for that same day. And I spoke to my professor who is the um, professor of science of psychology which is interesting given this story to me. Um, And I was like, so in a month, I have a conflict. I'm just trying to prepare ahead of time. Um, I'm not going to be able to be in class at this time. Can I do the exam early? Is there any way to work around this event that's really important to me um, for my career? And she was like, I don't care if you sleep through your alarm or you're meeting the president of the US, I don't make exceptions. And so I was like... Okay, so Pan Ams or psychology exam. And I chose to go to Venezuela and I got three gold medals at the Pan Ams. Um, And I came back with a zero for the exam. Wow. Um, But I ended up like, it was four exams. And so it was an average of your best four results. (laughs) So it was like a sacrifice (laughs) on the school front. So it wasn't easy. And there's definitely like... Teachers weren't always very accommodating. Um, and then climbing trips were were splintered into winter break and summer break. Yeah. Well, it seems like, a, again, a task for a, for an overachiever. So is there anything specific that you, uh, that you learned that you think has really helped you as a professional athlete that you learned in university as part of that education? Or was it more just sort of like gaining the experience of, um, of carrying on your career and putting yourself through college that ended up being kind of like a postgraduate education for you? Yeah, I would say above anything else, time management skills and also being able to structure um, a, a busy day schedule, which I think that we learn as professional athletes as well. But um, I had a lot on my plate because I was studying nonfiction writing and business management. And so um, just figuring out how to make um, my, my climbing goals and my school goals and my, my kind of like family goals and my life goals all on the same page each week. Like I I'm really into goal setting. I believe a lot in like setting daily ambitions and then also weekly, um, smart goals and monthly goals. Um, so yeah, that, that probably was the biggest thing. I, I really loved studying writing too. Like we had workshop classes where we write, let's say like 10 pages, 15 pages of work during a week and then submit it. And then the class would workshop it. So it's kind of like this really vulnerable thing. I do a lot of writing for myself. I don't, I expose some of it. Like I had a column with outside Mm -hmm. magazine um, but a lot of it is kept personal. Yeah. Well, it's such a useful skill. My, my brother's actually doing an MFA program right now. He's a, he's a great writer and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, something that will serve you well in, in any, uh, career ambition that, you know, you could apply to being an athlete, to writing your column or, you know, as part of your, political lobbying and activism. I'm sure uh, it comes in handy all the time. So, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of like all the high points in your career. And one of the things I really like to explore on this show is, you know, counterweight that with the hard things that 
professional athletes go through because I think there's a tendency to look at people like you and um, see the lifestyle that you have um, and think that it's always just like the most perfect ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Just like dream of a life. And I'm sure you wouldn't trade it for the world, but it seems to me like 2020 has been a really tough year for you. I know you were on an expedition in Mexico where one of your climbing partners passed away in an accident. I'm sure you had to rush home under some duress to get in front of the coronavirus and then quarantine. And then you had the surgery, which we talked about briefly at the, at the beginning of the podcast. So maybe talk a little bit about what 2020 has been like for you and how you've navigated some of those kind of traumatic and unfortunate episodes. Yeah, I feel like I can speak for the for most of the world and saying 2020 has been less than ideal. Um, I, yeah, I came home from Europe uh, March 4th and I've had hip pain for the last two years and I kept like brushing it off because I thought maybe it was just a torn labrum or something in my hip and you can function with a torn labrum. Um, but it got to the point that January and February, I just couldn't sleep most nights. Like I would have to take serious, like just like sleeping medicine. And I was in a lot of pain and I did, it was all from my hip and I didn't know what was going on. So the day after I got home from Europe, that, which was the day in between going to Mexico, um, I went in for an MRI to see what was going on. And I saw, um, surgeon, Dr. Omer Maidan, and he actually used to be a Red Bull athlete. He um, was a professional base jumper and he took the MRIs of both my hips. And I was like, so what are we looking at? Can I maybe get a cortisone shot for Mexico so I can put a bandaid over it? And he was like, you know, you're looking at, at a potential, like you're going to need a hip replacement in the next four to six months if you don't take care of this. Um, and he showed me where I had shredded through all of my surrounding tissue. Um, my labrum was just like completely shredded and my femur head didn't sit properly within, um, you know, the, the pelvic structure. And so it was kind of like at the verge of just like slipping out and that's what's called hip dysplasia. And as you have hip dysplasia, it's a genetic thing that I could have been born with. It could have been developmental, but as the last 20 plus years that I've been a professional athlete and grinding on it, climbing, I always say climbing is all in your hips and it's kind of ironic Mm. now that I'm going through this, but my hips had essentially been totally run down and this problem had gotten worse and worse to the point that the cartilage was degenerating and the pelvic bone was being compromised to fracturing because once you lose the surrounding structure that I had, then you're at risk of bone on bone rubbing, which causes, you know, complete like devastation to your pelvic bone. Mm -hmm. So, um, he told me that I needed what's called uh, PAO surgery on both of my hips. Um, and that entails first a labral, um, where they shave down your femur head and they knit together your labrum again. And then, and then after that, they break your pelvic bone in four places and then essentially move it so that it covers your femur head in, in a normal way. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's kind of interesting because 
before I had hypermobility in my hips because of this hip dysplasia, which meant that I could be really, really flexible without even necessarily needing to do much mobility work. Um, and it kind of became my kryptonite to this point. It was like advantageous until it was um, a surgical necessity to operate on. So I got pretty lucky that um, I did go in and I didn't keep wearing it down, putting it to the side. Like as athletes, I think all of us have a high pain tolerance. And so like I, I operated on a fractured leg for two months before I knew it was fractured. Like those sort of things, like you you just assume that it's part of the pain of what yeah. you do. Um, so differentiating that I think is really important, but long story short, he told me I could go down to Mexico because it would only be like a few more weeks. And then once I got back, I would get the surgery. So I was pretty like mentally fragile there and like emotional. Cause it meant, you know, taking 10 months off of my sport to do yeah. all this procedure. And I was really, really excited about this goal that we had in Mexico. So getting to do that was, you know, the saving grace of this all. Um, but then in Mexico, yeah, we had this like super tragic incident with Nolan happen and, and, um, it turned into a, a body recovery mission and his family came down. His family is so incredible. Um, but it was, it was really hard and it was like this other level of grief and, and, emotional devastation. And then we got back and COVID swept the nation. Um, so it was unclear when surgery was going to happen. Um, and also anything, all, all things are unsure. Um, so then surgery ended up happening end of April into early May was the second surgery. Um, so yeah, it's been a road. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm I'm just um trying to get my left side as strong as it can be before diving into the right side, which will be the next two and and knock on wood final uh surgical procedures of the year. Um and then hopefully about four months after that I can start getting back into climbing. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's important for people to to hear, you know, about the uh the hard times as well as the, uh, moments of triumph. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think, you know, in, anybody can relate to hitting a, a little bit of a rough patch where you feel like you can't catch a break. And, um, I'm curious sort of like what you're using this downtime to, to work on yourself. I, you don't strike me as somebody who will just kind of hang out on the couch for six months or whatever, and let your body heal. What, what are you using, um, this, this extra time to, uh, to work on? Yeah, I've been working on a few business projects, which I'm excited for, but they're, they're pretty much in their infancy. So I, I, I don't like, I can't boast about much yet, (laughs) but, um, I would say that the main thing that I've been using this time for is to figure out who I am outside of climbing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I see it kind of as this blessing because, I've never been given this or I've never allowed myself to have this stillness and time to reflect, um, to, to take climbing out of my life, which is such an all encompassing aspect of it. And to also know that I got to return to it after Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being given this forced break 
and not being able to say no to that, that option. Mm -hmm. Um, so I can really say like, who am I outside of climbing? Because for the last 21 years, climbing has been a really significant part of me. And, um, I think, you know, like when I think of my climbing career, I'd always like to be climbing. I'd love to climb well into my upper eighties. Um, but I don't want to be a professional climber forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I really believe in life as chapters and I don't know when like this chapter of my professional climbing career will end, but I don't want to be caught off guard when it does. And I also, I just like in general, even when I'm at like this peak edge of my training and, and really driven by whatever trip I'm planning for, there's still time for me to like learn and read and do some other things. Um, and, and so when I don't do that, it's almost like it bores me a little, like it's too simple. Um, so I like to always be kind of thinking of like, what other things do I want to do? You know, now I graduated from school in 2016. So I have like that space to fill with another passion, like side passion. Um, but yeah, I've also, Red Bull has been super helpful as you know, as a Red Bull team. Um, I've been working with a team of sports psychologists, nutritionists, exercise physiologists, my own trainer, um, a life coach, and also just a therapist and been trying to just, as I said before, like rebuild from the bottom up. And, um, I had a lot that I haven't dealt with, um, both mentally and physically that now I'm, I'm trying to deal with and, and emerge like stronger in that, in all of those senses. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good point and so well said. And I think really is relevant to my own personal experience from last year where I was confronted with this, like, who am I outside of being an athlete, right? For the first time in my whole life, because before I was a a runner, I played lacrosse and like, I've just always identified as an athlete. And then for the first time, I'm my health kind of deteriorated to the point where I couldn't compete. And yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to sort of like be confronted with that. And um, the more you sort of like are able to have conversations with people who have gone through the same things or for people who are listening to hear, you know, that, that you have similar feelings of like these identity kind of considerations, uh, similar to somebody who has a day job and might, um, feel like they're unhappy in whatever their pursuit is, but they can't leave because who are they without it? You know? And I just think that it's an important thing that isn't, isn't talked about quite enough, but is, uh, is so poignant in the moment of injury for professional athletes. And so, um, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm sure people will, will enjoy hearing that from you. So, um, Sasha, I really, I, I looked at your journey to be quite honest, like as like inspiration, cause I knew that you had this year last year. And, and this again was just me following your career, but I was like, wow, this is really inspirational. And, and then I was met with it. And so, yeah, yeah. I have to thank you for that. Yeah. So it's, it's like this sort of, um, I don't know, the concept of like self-doubt is always, I think, Mm -hmm. something that I I find really interesting. And when you're an injured athlete, sort of like trying to figure out how to deal with these 
these feelings of doubt in yourself of like, will it ever come back? Who am I without this? Can I yeah. be, can I be a productive, you know, contributing member of society if I'm not, you know, crushing races and doing big adventures. And I think to a, a big degree, it's something that impacts athletes in outdoor sports across the spectrum, you know, and I think you could probably speak to this as well before we let you go about like, you know, in climbing and in skiing and probably to, in some other sports, it seems like at this point you have to be pushing that edge so much to where you're like really confronting risk or, or risking serious um, injury or potentially even death to even get attention anymore. And it, it feels to me, and especially, you know, I feel, as I mentioned in our Instagram live the other day that I just feel so silly as a runner, you know, you, you have like an ankle injury and then you see somebody like you who's had five surgeries or whatever, and you still have seven months of recovery left in front of you. And it just makes me feel like such a baby, but Um, I don't know if you have anything you want to say in response to the self-doubt thing, but yeah, no, I will say like the impersonator complex. I think that's what it's called. The imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, The imposter syndrome. Thank you. Um, it's really real for me. Like I feel like a lot of my career, um, and my mentality is often in this, in this kind of like, do I deserve what I have? Mm-hmm. And then also this sense of like needing to prove why I deserve it. Um, and that's something that's forefront right now for me to work on is like to seeing the world in this abundance model rather than um, this unstable, like, you know, everything's limited and, and about to, I'm about to lose it. Um, model where, and I I think the abundance model is, is really important for like supporting everyone too, like seeing people not in a comparative lens, but seeing like celebrating each person individually. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think at the top echelon of any sport, there's like a really cutthroat, um, comparative culture and, and that can be really divisive. And I don't think it's healthy for the growth of the sport either. Um, and so that, I mean, frankly, it's something that I see in climbing and it's something that I'd like to represent as someone, uh, who presents an alternative option for that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, self doubt is real too. Like through these stages, it's hard for me to build out my 2021 calendar with these like ambitious goals and think, Mm -hmm. I can do these. Um, I will say I'd love to return to Mexico um, and try and go for the climb that we're we're going to go and try um, this last spring. But that's also wrapped in so much psychological work and and physical work to get there that it's intimidating to even think about sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, uh, you being open and honest about those things. And, um, yeah, if, if my N of one, uh, experience, uh, is, is helpful in, in any way, uh, I can tell you that, yeah, the, uh, 
eventually your body has an amazing way of coming back around and um, you're still so young that uh, I'm sure the uh, you have lots of years of competitive ambition still ahead of you if that is indeed something that you aspire to pursue. But Sasha, I appreciate you spending a, an hour with us this morning and uh, it's been fun to get to know you virtually over the last week or so. And uh, I'll look forward to following along on all your other uh, pursuits outside of climbing that uh, you have coming up in the weeks and months ahead. And I wish you nothing but the best in your physical recovery as well. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on the show so much. It's been so great to, yeah, I get to e-hang. So yeah. we'll have to hang out in person sometime soon. Heck yeah. All right, Sasha, thanks so much. Take care. Thanks again to Sasha. What an impressive woman she is. Feel free to follow her. I've got links to her social in the show notes. You can check out her website too, her YouTube channel. She is all over the internet and she's got lots of useful, valuable things to say. So please do give her a shout. Let her know if you enjoyed our conversation and follow her as she continues to blaze her path forward and work her way back to health. Throw her some encouragement on the interwebs. Appreciate you guys tuning in. I've got more interviews coming for you very soon. As always, I love you. I appreciate you. We'll talk to you soon.